Good morning. Um, I should have said bom dia, because um, that's um, Portuguese for good morning, and you didn't respond, so it's okay. Um, I'm going to recover. Like, by the third point, it'll be all right. Hey, I'm glad that you're here today, and really thrilled to be back. Um, I came um, home yesterday from the Amazon where I was privileged to be a part of another pastor's conference there um, for men and women um, who serve along the Amazon River. Um, and, and their stories are incredible. And just sitting face to face, eye to eye with these pastors, knowing um, that God is using them in tremendous ways, it's mind blowing. We go down there in order to teach and encourage and empower, but what we receive on the other end is more than I could ever have asked for. What really happens is that God teaches us. And that God inspires us and fuels us and gives us opportunities to learn from him in ways that we would not if we didn't spend time with these pastors. I also met a great friend this week. His name is Paolo. And he speaks about as much English as I do Portuguese. And we just had broken conversations all week long. And every morning at 6 a.m., Paolo and I would go and do um, just this incredible workout routine that he would lead and facilitate. And I would just follow him and do what he did. I really said that to um, overtly remind you that I, I was physically fit while I was in Brazil last week, but that's okay. Um, what happened is every day we'd go out and do these exercises, and, and one of the phrases, of all the phrases, you know, I know, hello, good morning, thank you. What Paolo knows in English is no picture, no train. And he said that to me every day. He would get out his phone and he would start to take a picture of us at the end of the workout because to him, no picture, no train. If you did not take a picture of the workout before it was over, that meant that you did not do it. Now, Paolo's an incredible guy. Um, he's an attorney. He actually does some work for JMA to help us in country. Um, and so he's an attorney. Um, he also owns a pizza restaurant, which... Those two things, I guess, seem to go together. And it's not just any pizza restaurant. I didn't go, and, and I would really love to be in the city long enough to go to his restaurant because this is what, it's like Lambert's home of the throwed rolls. Has anybody ever been there? Okay, they don't throw the pizza at you. But it's like that part where they just walk around with like food and say, raise your hand if you want some of this because they literally at the restaurant walk around with the pizza and you can try anything. It's like when you go to Pyology, which is my favorite place to eat pizza here in Franklin, you go and you make your pizza and then you look at the guy's table on the other side and you're like, man, I wish I'd gotten some of that. And it would be weird to ask him to share because he's a stranger, but at Paolo's Pizza Restaurant in Manaus, you literally get to try everything. It's like a buffet, but they bring it to you, which I think is fantastic. Someone should open up a restaurant just like that here. It would be great. And so in addition to being an attorney and also owning a pizza restaurant, he's also a sound engineer. He actually did all of the sound for the conference that we were at this week, um, knows how to do that. And he was also the drummer. Now that right there just blew my mind. It was like one step over the edge. He didn't play drums like this, although I'm sure he could. He played the kind of drums that we sometimes have up here, which is really just a box for somebody to sit on and then they beat it like this. I don't know what that's called, but they have a real good time. Like, so literally at the end of a song, like he's playing, he would stand up, go to the soundboard, push a button, and then go back and sit down and just start playing again. Double duty in this guy's life all the time. I learned a tremendous amount of work ethic from him because he's hardworking. He's a husband and a father and um, just a tremendous guy. So many tremendous people there and so many opportunities to learn. One of the sessions that I taught in the afternoon as an elective for the pastors and their wives was on a book that I read in 2016. It was actually my favorite book of the year called The Key to Everything. A fellow by the name of Matt Keller, who's a pastor in Florida, wrote it. And I looked all over Google to find out if he was in any related way to Tim Keller because, I mean, let's just be honest. If my last name were Keller or Piper or Graham or Mac as in Toby, like I would leverage that. Like straight up, let every one of you know, like I'm a third cousin twice removed of Toby Mac, you would know this. Um, but he's, uh, Matt Keller's not, so I'm assuming he isn't related, but he wrote this incredible book called The Key to Everything, which is bold. 
Y'all, if I wrote a book called The Key to Everything, it would be basically the size of a gospel track. That's it. But like this joker wrote a book called The Key to Everything. And what he says and sums up is something I believe. It's teachability. Someone's willingness to learn and someone's desire to grow. Uh, and so applying that to our lives today, we know that I'm going to a jungle conference and I'm sitting there going, I'm going to learn this week. God's going to teach me things this week from uh, people that are incredible and who serve in ways that are beyond compare. God's going to teach us this week from his word. And not just any passage, but a passage that we don't likely normally go to, one that we like skip over. I, I love the kinds of studies that we sometimes engage at Rolling Hills where we're literally just studying one book of the Bible or one character in Scripture because it doesn't give you the opportunity to bounce around and go from place to place. You literally go to the parts that you may normally skip over and, and, and learn something that would be truth. I'm a firm believer that every single word in this Scripture is equally inspired by God. My hero Reggie Joyner said this, but not every word in Scripturally is equally important for us. And that's true when you think about it because Jesus said it. A young attorney, not like Paolo, but another guy, a young attorney asked him, hey, what's the most important thing? And Jesus summed it up. All, all of the Old Testament commands, he gave them one that superseded all of the others. And so if Jesus says that this verse is more important than other verses, we can say that some verses are more important than other verses. And it doesn't mean that we can't learn from all of them. Because if it's written in this book, it's, it's food for us. If it's written in this word, Regardless of its level of importance, it's, it's a learning for us. We've been spending all of our time with Abraham, and he's in here today for sure, but, but he's not the key character. He plays a supporting role because today is a tale of two women, two women for Israel, and, and we're going to see something incredible. We're not going to start with Genesis chapter 21, although we'll get there. Matricula, we're going to start in the New Testament G book called Galatians. It's like reading the seventh Harry Potter before you read the first because Paul sums up the whole story for us in these words and it's a good place for us to begin. In the book of Galatians chapter four, starting with verse 21, it says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? You see, there was a debate and a controversy and a conflict in the life of the early church over just how Jewish do we have to be and just how much of the law do we need to adhere to now that we've been given grace. And people went back and forth and they wanted to really penalize the, the, the Gentile believers, those who did not have like Jewish roots and heritage and make them be more Jewish in order for them to come to Christ. And Paul's saying, no, tell me you who want to still be under that law. You guys on this side of the equation, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. And we could take the whole Abraham story and put it under that heading, the controversy between flesh and promise. My will, my desire, my purpose for life, and God's will, God's desire, God's promise for living. It's, it's not new. The difficulty between flesh Law, me, or life, promise, Christ. It's been going on forever. It says these things are being taken figuratively. Paul's saying, hey, I'm speaking in an illustration. I'm giving you a metaphor, but here's the point. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem, the earthly city, the city that still needs grace, the city that still needs forgiveness because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above, the, the new city, the new Jerusalem, what Jesus is bringing us is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, this is Isaiah chapter 54. He's quoting, be glad, barren woman. 
You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. This is a narrow way, but we want to follow it. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At the time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 21. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Oh, Lord. This is food for us. It's heavy and hearty. And like cutting off a woman and her son in Genesis, we want to cut off our life of sin and flesh and lawlessness under a law that we can't possibly achieve and instead surrender to the grace and the freedom that we've been afforded in Jesus and we want to be made different because of it. Teach us today from your word, God, what it means to be truly yours. And thank you for the two women in history that we'll examine as a way to learn who you are and who you want us to be. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray blessings on this moment because he's here in these words for us. And we ask that he would be here speaking to us. Amen. So Paul sums it up and says that this whole covenant way of life is really the story of two women and the two roads. Two roads in the woods, which one did you take? It's this one. What are we going to do and who are we going to examine and who are we going to be like at the end of this? There's two women presented to us and the first is Sarah. And we're not going to stop at Sarah, although the birth of the son is where we usually end in this passage of scripture because we're just so excited that the baby finally came. Like the baby that we've been hearing for not just weeks, but 13 years of Abraham's life that he's been waiting and waiting and waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled that he would have this son that would come from Sarah. Well, today's the day the baby is here in verse 1 of chapter 21 in the book of Genesis, it says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. Some of your Bible translations say that the Lord visited Sarah. And that even though, gosh, last couple of weeks I talked about circumcision. I said it like 52 times in one message. And I promise I'm only going to say it like three today. But I am going to go a little bit biological. Abraham and Sarah were doing everything that they needed to do in order to produce a child. It just had not happened. But in this moment, God visits. And you make a baby. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. He visited Sarah. And what was supposed to be happening between Abraham and Sarah in order to make a baby that had not yet made a baby happened because God came into the equation. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. That is such an important fact at the very time that God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, because you know that was a chapter a few weeks ago, Abraham circumcised him. That's twice I've said it. I promise I'm only going to go there one more time. As God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. We learned about that last week. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet, I have borne him a son in his old age. We could stop and celebrate, but we're going to keep going because there's another woman in the picture. She's been there since Genesis chapter 16 when Sarah brought her into play. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Wouldn't that be weird? If any time a baby stopped nursing, we threw a party like we got on Etsy, and we printed invitations, and we sent it out, look, I'm no 
longer nursing. Well, Abraham did that. They, it'll be like a new thing. Y'all should start that. <laughs> we're going to have a baby. And then we're going to have a party. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then he sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. That's an important geographical location in scripture and we should remember it. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And as soon as I read that sentence, I was like, Well, that's kind of weird. Because when Isaac was born, Ishmael was like 13 years old. And it was customary for Hebrew women to nurse their children for a about three, maybe even a little bit longer years. And so now the Joker's like 16, pushing 17 years old, and she lifted him up. Y'all, it's like that book, I Will Love You Forever. Y'all, you've read that. It's like, I will love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. And at the very beginning, when the little boy's crying, you just know, oh, that's the sweetest sentence. And then when he's acting up and he's misbehaving and she still loves him, oh, it's unconditional. It's so sweet. And then she still says to him, you know, as he grows up through his teenage years, and, you know, she's... but. When she's picking up her grown-up son and rocking him back and forth, when she's leaving her house in the middle of the night to drive to his and climbing into his window, that's creepy. <laughs> like, like, and if you know the backstory of the author from Canada who wrote it, your heart is broken, and it really is a beautiful picture. But there's a dividing line in the world about that book. Like, everybody's reading it, and it was an episode of Friends where Joey read it out loud, and everybody just cried because it is so sweet. But then the rest of us are over in the corner going, yo, that's weird. <laughs> like... My mom crawled up in my room in the middle of the night, started picking. First of all, I'm way bigger than she is. What is she, like bionic woman picking up her son in the bed? Like Hagar, she's like some strong lady coming in saying, I'm going to pick him up. It's kind of strange. He's 17. He's kind of capable. Grow up, kid. And then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and she gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. And everybody's asking the question, is that when Islam was born? Because we know that there's a direct tie. There's a link between um, Islam, Muslim religion, um, and Ishmael. And it's because Muhammad traces his lineage back to Abraham, not through Isaac, but through Ishmael. Ishmael didn't start a religion. He didn't wake up one day and write a book and say, this is the way we should go. But his heritage was used to start an Arab nation. And we see it, that it wasn't just countries that were formed from this son of Abraham, just like Isaac, son of Abraham. It was a a national religion and a worldwide phenomenon that wars against Christianity. It literally exists today and it traces its heritage back to Abraham 
through Ishmael. And if Ishmael hadn't have lived, if he'd have died under that bush that day that Hagar apparently placed her grown-up son underneath, if he had starved or whatever you do when you die because you don't have enough water to drink that day, then he wouldn't have had a nation. You see, without a son, there wouldn't have been that. But he lived. And he didn't just live, he got a wife, and the wife helped him father children, which eventually apparently became Muhammad and eventually apparently became um, a religion that wars against us today. But that's not where we begin the story. We start with Isaac. We start with the promise that's been fulfilled. We've been hearing about it for chapters. Abraham heard about it for years. Nearly 20 years he heard about the promise that God was going to give him through Sarah, and we're not surprised that this moment came because it was a promise from God. It's predicted twice, and we know that God always fulfills his promises, but he does it according to his ideas, not ours. You see, God orchestrates his promises through his plans, according to his desire. In chapter 16, Sarah comes into the picture knowing that she's supposed to have a son, but she's getting real old, way beyond childbearing years, and she takes matters into her own hands. She's like, hey, Abraham, I want you to meet my slave girl, Hagar. Isn't she pretty? Why, why don't you make a baby with her and then that can be my son? So it's like online dating. They're gonna get to meet each other and then have a relationship and then hopefully one thing will happen and another thing. And then all of a sudden there's a son. She took matters into her own hands. We do that. Somehow determining that God has a purpose for our life and if it's not coming to fruition as fast as we want it to come or the route that we want it to take, we'll just take matters into our own hands and supersede what God wants to do. But God's promises are always fulfilled according to his plans. Our design is never our destiny. What we can figure out on our own, see, my plan is never the plan. Because God said in chapter 17, when Abraham is still trying to pass off 13-year-old Ishmael as part of the promise, yeah, but what about him? Can't he just be the son of promise? Can't we just get this over with and go ahead and start that nation that you promised me? Can I go ahead and have all the land that you want me and my people to acquire? And God said, yeah, he can be a nation. That's fine. But Sarah will bear you a son. You will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. You know, the birth of a son through Sarah is essential to all of the other promises that God made to Abraham. You see, without a child, it would have been impossible for Abraham to have other descendants. And without descendants, nobody would have been able to inherit the land that God wanted them to possess all the way from the Nile in Egypt to the whole Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia. See, God didn't just give them a city or a country that we call Israel today. He gave them the whole thing. And it was to belong to Abraham's seed for all generations. And he couldn't have that without a son. That son was what would predate that part of the promise. Abraham couldn't be the father of nations until he was first the father of one covenant promise son. Every, all of God's promises always come through a son. There's Jesus if we're looking for him right there in scripture for us. Because we know that all of God's promises are made true to us in Jesus, knowing the plans that he has for us to prosper us and not to harm us, to give a future in spite of the fact that we're desolate, that happens through Jesus. To be with us and never forsake us, that happens through the power of Jesus, that we may gain access to the throne room of God, not going through some Old Testament priest in a holy of holies, but that you and I in our sinful state might petition God. That comes through Jesus. First Corinthians chapter one tells us that all of the promises of God, no matter how many they are, find their yes, their truth in Jesus. Everything always, past, present, and future through Scripture, changed with a son. There's Isaac. And we find Jesus. The plan of the people 
second to the plans of God. God did it his way. Our, our plans are not always the plans of God. He has a different route for us to take, and sometimes it's more difficult, but we get there this week even. We had a team of students that have been prepping for more than a year to go to South Africa, raising money and support and trying to figure out how to get there, buying tickets in advance, and they get to the airport in Atlanta and find out they can't go. Long story short, it takes them basically two more days to get to South Africa, but they had a plan. They had a schedule. They had a day that they were supposed to arrive. They had a, things that they were supposed to do when they get there to minister to the people in Red Hill to go to the place that we've been going for years as Rolling Kills. Like it was a mission and we were doing this for God. So why did we get delayed? Because God's plans are somehow better than our plans. And we don't know what God was sparing them from or saving them for, but we can be sure that he had a plan and they did not arrive in South Africa late. They got there right when God wanted them to. And I dare say that even if they weren't able to go at all, we would have been somehow able to trace that back to the perfect plan of God because his ways are better than our ways. He orchestrates all of his promises according to his plans and our design, our schedule, our itinerary is never our destiny. It belongs to God. And no matter what we think, no matter what we understand about his purposes and his promises, he always aims towards doing impossible things to increase our faith. Why did God wait till Abraham was 100 years old to give him a son named Isaac? Why does scripture remind us over and over and over again how old he was when that son came to increase our faith? To tell us that God's plan is better than our plan, to tell us that God is able to do far more than we think is humanly possible, to tell us that even when we step outside the bounds of God's plans and take matter into our own hands, Sarah, that God can still use that to work it out according to his divine orchestration. And we would be so much better fit to be a people who surrender to his plans from day one because A, they're gonna happen and B, they're good for us. They increase our faith. John chapter nine, verse three lives on a little card that Susan wrote and it hangs in our closet. It's a good reminder for us because Jesus is being asked by his disciples. They identify a man that was born blind, a man that just didn't become blind later in life, but a man who was born with blindness in the community. And, and because back then they believed that any kind of physical affliction that you had was caused by the sin in your life, they want to know, hey, whose fault is it that this guy is born blind? Was it because he sinned, because clearly he was just a baby born, or was it because of his parents' sin? And, and Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. And that wasn't completely true because we know that the people were sinners, but he was saying that his blindness was not caused by their sin. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened, why? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why did Abraham have to wait till he was 100 years old to get a son named Isaac? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why do you and I go through any sort of crisis? Why do you and I face any kind of difficulty so that the works of God may be displayed in us? Why does this work live in our closet? Because our third kid, Simon, is a special little boy. You see, we had these two girls and things were sitting kind of pretty and we were on that fence about whether or not we should have other kids. And Susan sends me a message from a women's conference that she's at. Men, y'all be ready. Don't let your women go to conferences. <laughs> she might send you a message that says, hey, the Lord has told me that we're going to have another baby. Which, you know, okay, whatever, let's do it. And so, the pregnancy ends in what would be our second miscarriage. 
And, and so you're like, but wait a minute, God, didn't you tell us this? Was I listening wrong? Was it something else that you wanted to say to me? I mean, well, you told me that we're going to have another kid and we got pregnant. We're so excited because it's the fulfillment of your promise and your word to us. And hey, it's a reminder that I was a really good listener that day when you told me we're going to, and then we've lost it. And then right about the time that it was, you know, possible to have another baby, we get Simon. Well, Simon has cystic fibrosis and he's exactly the kid that we were supposed to have because God wanted to display his works through him. He wants to increase our faith through him. Cystic fibrosis, although it's a terrible disease, is God's great gift to us because it offers us a chance to depend on him daily and to teach a little boy what it means to trust God so that his works might be displayed in you. Sarah said, who would have thought that Abraham would have a son through me? Who would have thought I, 90 years old, would get to nurse a baby? Yet I bore Abraham a son in his old age. That happened to increase their faith. Anything that you and I walk through happens because God caused it or allowed it. And he does it for the purpose of increasing our faith, displaying his works, telling us who he is. Isaac came as a fulfillment of promise to show that God could fulfill promises. Isaac came when they were old and beyond childbearing years to increase the faith of the family and anybody that came in contact with them to know that God is God and he can be trusted. We could stop right there and learn everything we wanna learn from Sarah and this kid Isaac, but we're gonna go on because Hagar's there too. And it's not just covenant people that we can learn from. It's not just Christian literature that we can learn from. There's, there's truth. There's truth that we can glean from this person and her son in this moment right here. And it's truth that God wants us to absorb and to know today. You see, Ishmael made fun of Isaac. That mocking, that joking, it wasn't the same as the laughter they, they experienced. Like, oh, we're having a baby. God's so good. It was, it was an evil disdain for the little boy because the promise that Ishmael had grown up thinking that he could somehow take and be a part of ended with Isaac. You see, once that baby came, it meant that Ishmael was out. Even living under Abraham's name and household, he wasn't going to get to be the son. And so he mocked. And Sarah said, get that woman and her son out of here. No longer is she, hey, meet my slave girl, Hagar from Egypt. Now she's that woman. He's not Ishmael, the kid that was 13 years old and you circumcised him to be a part of the promise that got, he's now that son. Get him out. And the Bible says in response to Sarah's words, the matter greatly distressed Abraham. Why? Because Abraham loved Ishmael and longed to fulfill his duty to Hagar. You see, it would have been the responsibility of Abraham to take care of that son and his slave girl mama for the rest of their lives. It was a social law. It was a moral law. It was actually part of the legal code. And what Sarah was asking him to do went against his moral nature, and it went against the law of the day to kick her out in response to their now being a son of the chosen wife was illegal and it was immoral and it was wrong and Abraham wrestled with it because he loved Ishmael and wanted to fulfill his duty to Hagar. Ishmael's 17, 16, 17 years old at this point. Abraham raised him. Abraham taught him. 
Abraham had a, an ongoing relationship with this son. Probably helped teach him how to like read and ride bikes and shoot BB guns. Or do whatever people did way back then. And now we've got to kick him out. Never see, go away. But God intervened and said it was okay. You know, the last time Abraham listened to Sarah, Ishmael was born. And this time if he listened to Sarah, Ishmael would basically die. Go away, out on his own, no longer under the protection of the father and the family, but be alone. So he was distressed. But God intervened and said, don't be afraid to do what Sarah tells you to do. Because Ishmael will still be a nation. I will take care of him. You know, being outside of Abraham's right family doesn't mean being beyond God's mercy. And isn't that good news for us? Because we can't even trace our biology back to him the way that Ishmael could. Being kicked out of Abraham's family did not mean being beyond God's mercy. You see, God heard the boy crying. And the angel called to Hagar and said these words. 2117 is an important verse for us because God said, what is the matter, Hagar? He didn't say, what is the matter, slave girl? What is the matter, that woman? He called her by name. God knew her name. He knows yours. When you call out, when you cry out, when you sob in your distress, the God of this universe knows you by name and he is fully capable of meeting your needs. He says, do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there under that bush that apparently 17-year-old kids could fit underneath. God has heard him crying. And that word heard is an important word for us because it's the word shema in Hebrew. And it's where we get the word shema to hear. And to hear from God is the most important thing that any of us could ever do. It was the most important command that God gave Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We have one God and we're going to hear from him. But because Hebrew doesn't have a whole lot of vocabulary words, and it's not just the word for hear, it's also the word for obey or respond. Because it wasn't just Israel's job to hear from God. They were supposed to obey what he said. And in this moment, God is saying to Hagar, I don't just hear you, I'm responding to you. It wasn't just, I have heard the boy crying as he lies there. I am responding to you right now in the middle of your distress. That God hears and God answers. He hears us when we cry, but do we obey him when he calls? That mercy was extended to Hagar and her son that day. In Matthew chapter 5, 45, Jesus is giving an important word to all of his disciples and the people that had gathered to hear the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells them that they're supposed to love their enemies. They're supposed to pray for people who persecute them. They're supposed to do the opposite of what their natural instinct says to do with people who are evil. They're supposed to provide them love and restoration and even forgiveness. And Jesus says, this is why, because the son, it's Matthew 5, 45, he causes his son, whose son, his S-U-N son, that thing hanging in the sky that we love, that we play in during the summertime, that gives us light and heat, that actually, uh, that we rotate around, that thing that we orbit, that thing that rises and sets, like that thing, it belongs to him. God causes his son, it's not ours, it's his, he causes his son to rise on both the evil and the good. He sends rain, oh, we need it sometimes, on the righteous and the 
unrighteous. The general gifts of God's mercy can be displayed on whomever God wants to display his mercy. How many of us have ever raised our hand and said, why do evil people prosper? Why do they get what we want? It's Psalm 73. Why do bad people get good things? Because God causes his son to rise on whomever he wants to rise. He causes his reign to fall on whomever he wanted to fall. And Hagar and Ishmael, who are not part of God's covenant people in this moment, they get a blessing from God because being outside of God's family does not mean being beyond God's mercy. Who's outside of God's mercy for you? Bless me, rolling hills, for I have sinned. It's a confessional. Because there are people that you and I believe are outside of the bounds of mercy. That should not be recipients of God's grace. And it might be a people group. It might be another religious group. It might be just another person who's wronged you. It might be somebody even in your own family that you've just cut off and said no more. They are outside the bounds. And a lot of times we feel rightly justified because we know they're not gonna change. And we may be in that moment 100% right, but that still does not preclude the God of this universe from being merciful to them or requiring mercy from us. None of us are outside the bounds. God not only makes promises, he makes provision. She opened her eyes in response to God speaking to her and she saw well. It was just what she needed. There's another deeper truth in here and it's for a specific group of people in our church and in this world today. It's the single people, the single parents. Because that's what Hagar was at this moment. She went from living under the, the, the leadership and the provision and the protection of someone who was as a husband to her to being out on her own. And God provided. We often say that the single moms in our community, and I'll just throw the single dads in there too, are, are, are heroes. And they, they end up living a life where they're required to do and to be that which they never wanted to do and be to fill a role that they were not designed to fulfill. And it gets deeper for us because the role of a father in a family, it didn't stop when their kid got old enough to wed. In fact, they were supposed to provide the spouse for their child. It would have been Abraham's job to go and get a wife for Ishmael. It was his job to find a wife for Isaac. It would have been his job to find husbands for any of the daughters that he may have had. It would have been the father's responsible to arrange that marriage. Y'all raise your hand if you wanted your daddy to pick your spouse. Isn't that weird? Like we just know, like I'm straight up 100% for arranged marriage and I'm happy to do that for any one of my children today. And some of y'all, you're doing such a good job. Your kids make the cut. Let's just, let's have a conversation. I don't have cows. I don't have land. I don't have any money, but we can work out something. Apostolic people today, you're like, oh, that's so old school. No, there are literally groups of Christians that still practice that today. And they have like a 0.01% divorce rate and their kids are doing fine. So let's just bring it on back. We can do it right here in the community church. We'll have arranged marriages. We'll, there's a sign up at the guest check-in when you come in tomorrow. Like, we'll just figure it out. Like it was Abraham's job to find a spouse for his kids. And in that moment, Hagar had to step up. 
And there's something special about the way she did it. Where did she go to find a wife for her son? She went to Egypt. Why? Because she was from there. And because it was the custom of Abraham and his people to go and find a spouse from the people group that they came from. She didn't just go find a wife for her son. She went and found a wife for her son in the way that Abraham would have gone and found a wife for her son. God enabled her to be the mother and the father that she needed to be in this moment. God's doing that for single moms. Our heart breaks. And we know that you have to step up and do things that you, you were not prepared for. God provides. God provides. When he does, it, it, it does not mean that it's easy because provision doesn't equal promise. If provision equaled promise, that would be prosperity gospel for us. And I could tell you that just by putting your trust in Jesus and giving an offering to this church, you're gonna receive that tenfold this week. Y'all go home and wait for the check to come in the mail. Provision doesn't always equal some sort of prosperity promise. It was hard. And so it's not just a tale about Sarah. It's not just a tale about Hagar. It's not just the option between flesh and grace. It's a tale of two options for us. Because understanding that God provides, understanding God's provision, and understanding God's purpose, it doesn't equal salvation. That comes as God's gift of grace and grace alone. Galatians 4.31, he said it. Brothers and sisters, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We say at Rolling Hills that a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a disciple is a growing follower of Jesus Christ. What's a growing follower? It's a believer who's taking intentional steps towards Christ-likeness and inviting others to do the same. A disciple, you know what they do? They shema. They hear from God and do their best to obey God. A disciple isn't just hearing from God. A disciple is doing what God says, Shema. You know, that's the root that's in Ishmael because God heard and he responded. It's a root in the name of a little boy who would be Abraham's great-grandson, Simeon. Comes from the same word, Shema, which means God has heard. It sounds like the word that comes from Samuel or Samuel, because God has heard. It's, it's the name for our little boy, Simon. He has heard. And we're not just going to listen to the word of God and deceive ourselves. We're going to do what it says. That's what this word tells us. We can be like Hagar, the lost, wandering sinner in need of God's provision, and he can provide it. But we know that that alone is not enough. We not only need his physical provision, we also need his eternal salvation. And that comes from a promise of being someone who doesn't deserve his grace, but gets it anyway. We can be Hagar, the lost sinner in distress in need of God's provision, or we can also be Sarah, the daughter of a covenant that she did not deserve, who wavered back and forth in whether or not God could ever fulfill it, and yet she receives the child of promise. Even when we're wavering, even when we're sinning, God can come into our lives and provide a child of promise. His name won't be Isaac. His name is Jesus. We can be the sinner in distress in need of provision. We can be the covenant daughter in need of salvation. And then we land in 1 Corinthians where God says us, everything that happened to them, all that stuff, happened as examples and were written down as warnings, teachings, learning for us. We can learn from this. We can learn who we want to be. We can learn who we don't want to be. And at the end of the day, I don't want to be either. Hagar, who's outside that covenant promise, no thank you. 
or a Sarah who's in the middle of it, but not yet even believing it, <laughs> who's struggling, going back and forth, taking matters into her own hands. I, I, instead, I'd rather be just the Shema, the disciple that's in here, the hearing and the obeying. I want to be the, the Simeon or the Simon. I want to hear the word of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 21, that's outlined for us. And I want to be someone who believes it and follows it, who trusts it, even when it's hard. When I'm crying out underneath a tree, knowing that there's nothing in sight that I can do, there's a God who can do more than I can even imagine. He specializes in impossible things, and he does it to increase our faith. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you are, you're right here. I don't know where you are with God. Are you someone that's crying out knowing that he confidently hears? Or someone that's saving your breath because you don't think he's listening? And even if you were, you don't think he would do anything about you? Or are you like me learning every single day that whatever's going on in me and around me, God is somehow working it out to increase faith in me so I might trust him more. He hears me when I call and he responds. Do I hear him when he speaks and obey? That's the option for us. And that's the one I hope we take. Jesus, continue to teach us who you are and who you would have us to be in response to your word, in response to these characters, in response to these lessons that we can glean and, and use to understand you better. Would you continue to bless this series so that we can learn all we can in this particular season of life from a guy named Abraham, and, and not just him, but all the people that surrounded him. And would we be a different people, a called people, a listening people, and an obeying people as a result of what we encounter in your word? That is, that is the design and the goal, God. That our faith would be increased and that in turn our obedience would increase. Would you do in us what only you can? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.